guys are a bunch of slobs, man. Well, good morning, brothers. How are your burritos? Yeah, glad to be here. We've got a lot of work to do, so let's just jump in. We say a prayer. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Amen. So I wonder why you came to a seminar entitled The Gospel Man and the Battle for His Mind. Maybe you saw that title in the bulletin and, and you thought, battle? What battle? Or more likely you are all too familiar with the battle. Maybe you even feel like you've been losing the battle of the mind, losing to impure thoughts or anxiety, doubt, depression. Maybe you've come this morning to try and get some new tools, some new weapons so that you can fight this battle for the mind. Or, or maybe you're just intrigued by the concept. Maybe you realize like I did uh, several years ago, and as what Scott was saying this morning, that this concept of the mind or the inner self is all over the Bible. And maybe you, you've recognized that and you want to just come and learn more about what this means. Those are all great reasons to come to a seminar like this. And I hope that for whatever reason you came here, you walk away uh, being helped by this time together. But I, I feel like I just need to say up front that this concept of the mind and the battle for the mind is, is so massive. And it's as massive as it is foundational to the Christian faith. That there is no way that in this time together I could say everything that, that needs to be said, even a fraction of what needs to be said about this topic. And that's one of the reasons that we've, uh, I love the way that Dave has, has kind of put this together. That we're going to be thinking about this idea of the mind for the whole year. So we've got our Claris Conference coming up in March. That's on the Christian and the mind with Dr. Moeller and Dr. York. And then we'll have three more seminars all dealing with different aspects of the mind. And so I see it as kind of my task this morning to lay a foundation for what we'll be thinking about for the whole year. So this is going to be more of a, a theological, biblical foundation. We're not going to be working necessarily from one main passage. I won't be exegeting a passage, but we'll be jumping around a lot and, and just trying to get our heads around what do we need to, to think about? What do we need to have in mind as we approach this topic of the battle for the mind. And, and before I get into some, some more specific theological and practical principles, I, wanna, I do want to make sure that we're clear on a couple of things. Two key concepts that you'll see at the top of your handout if you're taking notes. I want to think about this concept of the battle for the mind in the perspective of the inner being and the Christian worldview. So those, those two concepts are going to have to be in mind as we approach this topic. So first, the inner being, which is what Scott was already talking about from uh, that book, The Dynamic Heart in Daily Life. And Jeremy Pierre is a good friend of mine. I consider him a mentor, and I can't commend that book highly to you enough. And that's influenced a lot of what I've been thinking about in this too. But when we think about this, this concept of the mind, what do we mean by the word mind? Or more importantly, what does the Bible mean by the word mind? And it is, this is important to, to really understand these definitions clearly because the Bible talks about the inner self and the mind very differently than we do, as Scott alluded to. Just think about this. How often do we, do we separate out the heart and the mind? How many times have you even used those two concepts in opposition to each other? I've got it in my head, but it's not in my heart. The Bible just doesn't really talk like that. 
The Bible uses a number of different terms, and they are not identical, okay? The heart is not exactly the mind, is not exactly the soul, but the Bible uses those things in a way that is much more integrated and interchangeable than we often think about it. So Scott gave you an example, you know, as as you read in the New Testament, Paul will, will talk about the mind as the place where we gain knowledge and understanding and reasoning, but then he'll also say in a place like in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that it is in the heart where God enlightens us and gives us knowledge of the glory of God. Same could be said for words like the soul or the spirit. And all of this describes what Paul in places like Ephesians 3.16 and Romans 7.22 refers to as the inner being or the inner man. So all of these things, again, have some nuance. There's differences in them. But, but we need to think about this much bro- more broadly than we tend to when we approach the life of the mind. And why is that important? Well, when you're engaging in a battle, you need to know what your battlefield is. And if we remove the concept of the mind from the rest of our personhood, we can get into trouble. For example, if you are struggling with an emotion such as anxiety, and you have said, well, that's a heart issue, not a mind issue, and then you will start to look for an emotional or a psychological solution to this problem of anxiety when the Bible would say this heart problem is solved by a mind solution, that you speak thoughts and truth to the heart, and then that in in turn shapes our our bodies, our flesh, our actions. And so this is all much more integrated. And that's, that's really the goal of the Christian life, is that all of these parts of our being would be integrated. They would be aligned and be serving the same purpose. I think this is what Jesus means in the great commandment. He said to them, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus isn't separating those things out. He's trying to be holistic. He's trying to integrate them all together. He's saying every part of your being needs to be integrated and aligned to what? To the love of God. To the glory of God. So that is our goal, is this whole person alignment. Okay, Thoughts, minds, hearts, beliefs, values, volition. Okay, our, our every, every aspect of our inward self needs to be aligned to that purpose of the love and the glory of God. Of God, And so that's where I come to our second concept, our second introdu- introductory concept, the Christian mind at the level of the Christian worldview. And if you were at our last Gospel Men seminar, this is what Tim talked about from Psalm 19, the Gospel man and his worldview. And I, and I want to build on that because this is not just, worldview is not just a trendy topic that comes up a lot now in evangelicalism. It is foundational. It is important. And, and if you don't know what a worldview is, we don't have time to get into all of the nuances of the different kinds of worldviews that there are, but, but to, to say it simply, the worldview is the integrative lens that you have in your mind or the interpretive lens that you have in your mind through which you evaluate and make sense of the world around us. Okay, the, the worldview is kind of the structural framework that every person has in their mind, every person, on which you hang your thoughts and your values and your beliefs and your emotions and your goals and your objectives, okay? The, the worldview is, is how we make sense of the world, and every person has a worldview. Every person has to have answers to the question like, where did all of this come from? Why is there something instead of nothing? How did that happen? Or, or what is the purpose 
of the human life? What is wrong with the world? Where is all of this going? Every single person has an answer to those questions. The scary thing is not everybody knows that they have answers to that questions. Many people have passively formed worldviews that they've just kind of soaked in from the culture around them or from their own experiences, okay? But they are walking with a certain kind of worldview. So as, as Dave said, I did a college ministry for several years uh, after I graduated, and we would, we would do this thing as an evangelism tool, a resource that actually uh, Crew, Campus Crusade developed called Perspective Cards. And they're great. If you've, if you've never heard of these, you should look into them. But they're, they're just little, it's a little deck of cards. And you go around, you walk up to a stranger, and, and the, the exercise is just to, to ask them these worldview questions. And it gives them really easy options to kind of answer these worldview questions. And so I would walk around with students, and I'd go around on our campus at the University of North Texas, and, and I would do this exercise with them. Am I cutting out? Am I sounding okay? Okay, it's just me just me. Um, but I would do these exercises with these students, and I would ask them these worldview questions. What is God like? What is, what is the purpose and meaning of life? What's, what's wrong with the world? What's the source of truth, if there is such a thing as truth? And, and would just ask them, you know, to answer those questions, and it was amazing. These are college students, okay? College students that have never once been pressed to articulate their, their own answer to that question. So I'd set out these options. What is God like? Hmm. That's a good question. How have you not thought about this before? But so many people have an answer to that question, but they've never articulated it. And I say that that's scary because our worldview influences our choices. We are not making choices in a vacuum. We are making choices from a set of thoughts, principles, values, beliefs, and it comes out. And so if you've passively formed your worldview then what is dictating the decisions that you make? Just, just one example of this, okay? Everybody's worldview has to answer the question, where does the value and dignity of a human being come from? Right? As Christians, we have a biblical and deep traditional view called the Imago Dei, that we think that people are valuable because Genesis 1 says they're made in the image of God. And so when we see a person in front of us, we don't, we don't see just another person. We see someone that looks like God, that is beautiful, that God made and God cares about and God knows. And so they have intrinsic worth in themselves because they're made in the image of God. But not everybody has that worldview. If you are an atheistic materialist, then a person is, as Bertrand Russell says, the great British philosopher, he says that they're just a random collocation of atoms. Now, if you've got a, a random collocation of atoms standing in front of you, what value do they have? Where does their value or dignity come from? And if that is your worldview and you get your girlfriend pregnant, what do you do with a fetus? And your grandfather is getting old and doesn't have his mental faculties anymore. How do you think about him? When the waitress at the restaurant screws up your order, what do you do? How do you live with your wife if she is just an accidental, random collocation of atoms? That's your worldview influencing your decision. It comes out. So this is why this is so essential and why we bring this idea of the worldview up again and again. Because what you think and how you interpret the truth, the reality of the world influences your actions. And this is, this is the point. This is the truth. There are only 
two worldviews. There is the right worldview, and then there is every other wrong worldview. Right? <laughs> so the battle for the mind begins with having the right worldview. That's my point. We could have titled this seminar, The Gospel Man and the Battle to Apply the Christian Worldview to Every Aspect of His Inner Self. But that would not fit in the bulletin. So called it The Gospel Man and the Battle for His Life. But this is the battle. To have a right worldview and then to know how to apply it. I think this is at the heart of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And we don't have a primary text today, but if we had a primary text, it probably would be this. Very familiar passages, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, on the basis of everything that he said up to this point in Romans, all of the theology, all of the doctrine, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we present our bodies? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see worldview in that? Don't be passively conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed. How? By renewing your mind, by changing the way that you think, by aligning your thoughts with not the world's definition of truth, but, but truth as it is revealed by God. That's the battle. I think another passage that captures this battle well, it literally uses battle language, is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 5. So if our primary text wasn't Romans 12, it would probably be this text. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's a good verse. The weapons of our warfare are knowledge. Good arguments, the truth, the divine truth. Paul says in verse 5, the knowledge of God, the truth that we bring against falsehood. To what? Destroy it. To destroy the fortress of a false worldview. Arguments, lofty opinions. And I love the metaphor. We knock down the fortress, and then what do we do? We take captives. That's, that's winning the fight. We take captives, we take those, those false worldviews, those inaccurate thoughts, and what do we do? We take them captive to make them obey who? Christ. And these verses will get slightly misused, I think, so we need to be, we need to be careful with this, because a lot of times people will, will say, I want to take every thought captive. And usually it's like, you know, I'm having lustful thoughts, but I want to take that thought captive. Well, this is not first a command for us to take our own thoughts captive, right? This is, this is about us engaging with the false thoughts outside in the world, okay? But then that certainly applies to us, doesn't it? That we all will have false ways of thinking. And this is the fight that we take that false thought captive and conform it to the truth that is revealed in Jesus Christ. So that's our battle. The inner self 
the Christian worldview. What I want to do now with the time that we have left is I want to give you 10 principles. Okay, five are going to be theological principles, kind of a foundation, and really there's sort of a progression. And then I want to give you five practical applications. And I could say so much more about this, but I stopped at 10 for your sake, okay? So let's look at these theological principles. First, God is the source of truth. This is a quote from John MacArthur. He says, Truth is that which is consistent with the mind, will, character, glory, and being of God. Or even more to the point, truth is the self-expression of God. That is the biblical meaning of truth. Reality, okay, what the world is and how we view it, reality is what it is because God declared it so and made it so. Therefore, God is the author, source, determiner, governor, arbiter, ultimate standard, and final judge of all truth. So we have to start here because the progression is how do we get from God's truth, how does God's truth get communicated to us, but we have to start here because this, this means that there is truth. There is objective truth, and it has always existed in the mind of God. And when God created the world, he manifested it in truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is measured by God's truth because God is the source of truth. And this also means that truth is knowable, that we can look at the world and we can say, yes, there is truth. But our minds are not perfect. They are fallen, and so we will fail to interpret the truth rightly. That's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 even says that, that the mind actively suppresses the truth as it has been revealed in everything that has been made by God. So apart from God's work, the truth remains perfectly known only by God. So we get to our second point. Jesus is the manifestation of truth. Jesus is the manifestation of truth. We remember Jesus' own declaration about himself in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. Which that by itself is a staggering statement of Jesus' own deity. Remember, we've, we've been thinking about this for the last few weeks. But if God is the truth, if God is the source of truth, and Jesus says, I am the truth, he's saying, I'm God. But more, this, this gets to the reason that Jesus came. Jesus actually says this to Pilate in John verse 18. Verse 37, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then you remember what Pilate said in response to that when Jesus said that? What is truth? And then as someone has said, he didn't wait for an answer. Pilate was a relativist. But the big point that I want to make is that the Christian worldview the teaching and the understanding of reality that comes from Jesus Christ alone, that's the correct worldview. What did Paul say? We take those captives and we conform them to Christ. We make them obey Christ. So Jesus is the bridge that helps us go from God alone knowing the truth to manifesting the truth to us. And Christ's work, Christ's work is what makes the truth available to us. It is Christ's work. A facet of the gospel is that Christ redeems our fallen mind and enables us to know the truth. This is the new covenant. This is something that we need to think about more. So that's our third point. The new covenant in Christ's blood enables us to know truth. The new covenant enables us 
to know truth. This is Jeremiah 31, where the prophet prophesies about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Yeah, and the beautiful passages, and we think about the new covenant as the promise of forgiveness, which is right. The work of Christ is forgiving us of our sins, but we don't always think about it as the enlightening work. God teaching us in our hearts, in our inward being. When Ezekiel talks about this in, in chapter 11 of Ezekiel, in verses uh, 19 and 20, he says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So that's the new promise, the new covenant hope, is that God will do that change in our inward being, that apart from which we cannot really understand the truth. God takes out the heart of stone. He puts in the heart of flesh. So let me just stop right there. As I said, there are only two worldviews. If you have the wrong worldview, if you're not a Christian, I know this is a gospel man seminar, but if you're not a Christian, you fundamentally cannot have the truth apart from the gracious work of God in Jesus Christ. So if you have not believed in Jesus, your heart is, is stone, your mind is fallen, and in every way your worldview is broken, and you may not realize it. But you can't have the worldview of God, the right interpretation of reality, the truth of God through Jesus Christ. So believe in Jesus and you'll have a new heart where you will be taught the truth of God and be enabled to obey the law of God. It's an amazing promise. We could spend all day just thinking about the new covenant. But did you notice in Ezekiel, he says that I'll put a new spirit in them. And I think that might just be synonymous with the heart. I'm going to give them a new heart. I'm going to give them a new spirit. It's all integrated. But I think it's okay for that to take us to thoughts of the work of the Holy Spirit. So our fourth point, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 10 to 13. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, the God of truth. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. But listen to this. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. You hear that? The Spirit that knows God's thoughts, we have received. That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, that is, to those who have this Spirit. 
When you think of what Jesus says in John 14 and 16 about the work that the Holy Spirit will do, he will bring to remembrance everything that I have said to you. So it's an incredible promise of the Holy Spirit that he helps us to understand the thoughts of God. He takes the truth of God, brings it to us. But how exactly does he do that? Did you notice that Paul says we impart these through words? So the Holy Spirit's activity always works through words. And that gives us to our last point, verse 5, our last theological point. God's word is truth. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus prays this to the Father. Sanctify them, my disciples, in truth. Your word is truth. In 1972, the uh, pastor, theologian, apologist Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called He Is There and He Is Not Silent. Talking about God. And, and in some ways, that's the greatest truth that there is. Because another theologian said, God's revelation is reconciliation. God is there. God has the truth in himself. God knows what the truth is. We are fallen. But God hasn't remained silent. He hasn't left us on our own to try and figure out what the truth is. That's what everybody else is trying to do. But God has spoken to us and told us what the truth is. God's word is truth. God has spoken through his actions and history. God has spoken through the prophets and the apostles. God has spoken through his son. And he has sovereignly worked to ensure that all of that speaking, all of that revelation has been perfectly recorded in a book. Okay? In this book. This magnificent, perfect, sufficient, amazing, word of God. So everything, all of this, this theological progression, everything that we thought about up to this point, it all comes down to this, read your Bibles. And if you're coming and you're like, man, I came to a seminar to get something a lot deeper than that. Then you don't get it. You don't get what this is. It is right that the psalmist in Psalm 19 would say, this is more precious than gold. Even much fine gold. This is sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. This is the truth. And this is the fight to take this truth, to know this truth, and to apply this truth, to shape our worldview after this truth as it has been revealed by God. This is the knowledge of God. Not all of it. Not everything that God knows is in this book. We couldn't handle it. But God has told us everything that we need to know. This is the knowledge of God that we need to have with which we destroy strongholds. Every false argument, every lofty opinion, and we take it captive, every thought captive to obey Christ according to this. So let's look at some practical principles. Sixth, be a learner. Be a learner. The Greek verb in uh, our New Testament that is, that is translated to learn is manthano, and the noun form of that word is mathetes, which we translate disciple. So a disciple is a learner. It's the same root word. A disciple is a learner. This is what Jesus was doing when he was asking the disciples to follow him, saying, learn my teaching. This is Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke or my teaching upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle 
and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when you commit to following Jesus, you are committing to a life of learning, to a life of study. And what are we learning? This. And it's more than just reading it. Several years ago, um, I had a friend, he was a young man, who had just gotten his first real job. And it was a good job. And he had absolutely no experience in it. Not quite sure how he got it. But he showed up for the first day of work at this great new job, and his supervisor just dropped a big binder on his desk. And it was his instruction manual. And walked away. Everything that this young man needed to know to do his job was right there in that book. You think he just let it sit there on the desk? Or do you think he said, well, you know, I read it for five minutes today, so check. No. He poured over that thing. He read it cover to cover multiple times. He was memorizing parts of it. I'm sure if Max McLean could have read it to him in the car, he would have been listening to it to and from work. And I remember talking to this kid. He's a smart kid. And he said there were so many things in that book that he didn't know what they were. He didn't understand. And so as he was reading that book and he came to these things that he didn't know what they were, did he say, man, this is, this is hard. What's my fantasy team doing? And he said, well, you know, at least I tried. I read it. No, what did he do? He came to something in that book that he didn't understand. He Googled it. Or he asked the guy in the cubicle next to him, or he went to his supervisor. He says, I need help understanding this, because if I don't understand this, I can't do my job. I can't fulfill my purpose. How do you think about the Bible? And your learning of the Bible. That was a job. This is our eternal life that we're talking about. Be a learner. There's a lot more that I could say. I, you know, I had a whole other page about suggestions for how you can study the Bible better and how you can grow as a learner, and we don't have time for any of it. So let me just say this. If you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know how to approach the Bible, just look around here and look at somebody that looks like they know what they're doing and ask them. That's, that's discipleship. That's a discipleship relationship. You look at somebody and you say, you know more than I do, help me. Even if you're just a step ahead. And some of you men that you've been doing this for a long time, you are learners. We need help. As young guys, us new Christians, we need help. So look around at people that, that look like they could use your investment, your intention. So that brings me to my next point, number seven. Go to church. This is how we fight the battle of the mind. Go to church. Okay, throughout history, the local church has been what someone has called a Christian learning center. A learning center, not an entertainment venue, not a spiritual self-help center, a learning center. And we're in it together. Okay? In this battle of the Christian faith, we are not ninja assassins by ourselves crawling around in the dark. We are a phalanx. You know what a phalanx is? It's an army of guys shoulder to shoulder fighting together and our strength is in our numbers and in our community. Okay, We are in this together. We are speaking and applying the truth of God's word to one another. We are teaching one another. We are learning from one another. Dave talked about a number of these opportunities in our church. One-to-one -one Bible interactions, community groups, but especially the Sunday morning gathering. Don't devalue that time. 
And don't think about that time as primarily for you to be entertained or comforted. That's not what it is. One of my professors, Don Whitney, he would always remind his church on Sunday that the weekend is over. Sunday is the first day of the week. We are not resting today. We are working today. We have come together to do work, to study God's word, to learn. And this church, praise God, this church has that conviction. Desert Springs has that conviction. That's why we preach the way that we do. And we want to keep on creating opportunities for you even on Sunday mornings to grow in learning. So here's another shameless plug. February 16th, 9 a.m. for the next, I think, 16 weeks, a a Sunday school class, an adult education class on spiritual disciplines. February 16th, 9 a.m. Come to that if you want to grow as a learner. Bring your wife to that. Bring Bring your friends to that. And bring them to other classes as we add them, okay? We're always trying to develop this church as a Christian learning center so that you can grow as a learner. Point number eight. Guard your intake. Guard your intake. Uh, In another seminar, actually, this year, we're going to talk about media, the gospel man and the battle for his mind with relation to media and technology. So I'm not going to harp on this too much, but one of the easiest ways that we can be passively conformed to the world, right? Remember Romans 12, 1, do not be, 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world. One of the ways that we can be conformed to the world in our age is through media and undiscerningly just taking in everything that this world has to offer that shapes the way that we think harmfully, okay? I'm not saying that you just have to watch the Hallmark Channel all the time, but you have to be discerning. You have to be on guard, okay? Guard your intake. I get this primarily from Philippians 4, 8, which Ryan read uh, earlier this morning. Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, what? Think about these things. And obviously, there's nothing more true, honorable, excellent, on and on. There's nothing more of that than God's word, but there are lots of other things in this world that are, that are good, that are lovely, that are, that are true and pure and excellent and worthy of praise. There are lots of things in this world that we can take into our minds that makes it really easy to just do that one more step up to thoughts about God. And most of those things, brothers, are not on the internet. Okay? I'll stop there. Number nine. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. This process of the life of the mind does not stop at the acquisition of knowledge. Okay, I am sure we have all met very knowledgeable people whose lives are a wreck. It is not enough to just know. We have to apply. And this is the step. And in many ways, this is, this is where swords start clashing, okay? This is where the battle really happens. How do we apply the truth, the knowledge that God has given to us through his word, how do we apply that in a way that actually wins battles? We preach to ourselves. Psalm 42.11 is a classic example of this. Okay, Psalm 42.11 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, stop. The, the psalmist says his soul is cast down. It is in turmoil. He's depressed. He's anxious. And so he preaches to himself. He preaches to his soul. Look at this. Hope 
in God, soul, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Why are you cast down, soul? Hope in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones has very famously commented on this passage in his book called Spiritual Depression. And he says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but there they are, talking to you. And they bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking to you. Who's talking? Your self is talking to you. Now, this man, speaking of the psalmist, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. That's the battle. That's the battle for the mind. You speak truth to yourself. So again, you have to know the truth. You have to have learned the truth. You have to have memorized the truth. You have to know where this truth comes from. You have to know how you are able to acquire the truth. But at the end of the day, you're taking the truth and you're just speaking it to yourself. That's the fight. Because we all have false thoughts arise within us. Faults that we have soaked in from the world around us. Thoughts that we have have carried with us from our sin nature, from the time before we were saved. We have thoughts even that I think are put there, influenced by the work of the devil. Our fight is not against flesh and blood, okay? So we have these thoughts that arise within us and they seem like they're true and they tell us that they're true. We have these thoughts that are trying to shape our worldview, trying to to say that this is what is real. And our warfare is to engage those thoughts, to stop passively listening to those thoughts and saying, yeah, that's, that's true. No, our, thought, our, our, our fight is to say that is not true. This is what is true according to God's word. We correct ourselves. We change the way we're thinking. We renew our mind. That is the fight. It's an active talking to yourself. And I will just say something that I personally have found a lot of success with in this fight is to actually talk to myself out loud, okay? It totally weird the first time I did it, but it works. There's something about forming the words with your mouth and then hearing them in your ear, even if it's just coming out of your own mouth, okay? That I am actively speaking the truth to myself. So let's, let's, say, let's say I'm feeling anxious. And I have, I have had uh, in my life several bouts of anxiety and depression, okay? So this is not a hypothetical. Let's say that I am, that I am anxious, something, let's say I, I, I have to pay a bill. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to pay it. And this has stirred up in me anxiety. The false thoughts that are rising up say that I'm not ever going to be able to pay this bill. And then what's going to happen? I'm going to go into debt. Things are going to get really bad. My wife is going to be angry with me and it's going to cause conflict in my marriage. And if other people knew about it, then they would think that I am a failure because I cannot provide And I can sit in this rut of believing and listening to these false thoughts. But God in his grace, by his Holy Spirit, I'll stop and I'll preach to myself. I'll preach to myself and I'll say, no, Chase, 
God is your father, and he cares for you. And even as he feeds the sparrows and clothes the lilies of the field, he will provide everything that you need. And I'll say, Chase, you know what? Even if this gets hard, even if hardship comes, hardship is God's way of sanctifying you. It is not punishment. It is discipline for your good. It means that God loves you. And Chase, you know what? Even if your wife and other people think so little of you, what really matters is God's opinion of you. And God loves you in Jesus Christ. And I'll say, Chase, you know what? Even if you die penniless, as soon as you die, you get a mansion. You're going to be with God forever. And I just see that over and over. I'll say that thing to myself over and over. That truth. Where did I get that truth from? From the Bible. And I'm just speaking the truth into those false thoughts. I'm taking every one of those thoughts captive and I'm making them obey Jesus Christ. That's the fight. That's it. That's the gospel man in the battle for his mind. And when you fight that fight, brothers, our last point, number 10. When you fight that fight, that new covenant, Holy Spirit-enabled fight, expect to be transformed. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. It's kind, of, it's kind of a weird construction, Romans 12, verse 2. It's a command. Be transformed. You can't really do that. But then he gives the means of that transformation. Be transformed by what? By the renewal of your mind. So as we look at that command, the force, the imperatival force for us is not on the be transformed part. It's on the renewing our mind part. Renew your mind. Apply the truth of God, the knowledge of God to these false thoughts. But then you know what? If you do that, you will be transformed. I think Romans 12 too is a promise, a promise for us to take hold of. So I don't know, maybe somebody's in here and is just discouraged. You feel like you're losing the fight. Brother, this is a promise. God will work by his new covenant purposes through his Holy Spirit acting through his word. If you fight this fight, you can expect to be transformed. You can expect to see fruit. I don't know what that's going to look like. Okay, I don't know how, how sweeping and broad that success, that transformation will be. But I do, I do have to read this as a promise. If we engage in this fight and we get, engage in it together, God will work. God will transform us. We'll, we'll win. We'll win the battle. And maybe, maybe it'll be a few victories and then some losses, but, but I know at the end, in the very end, we will win the battle. I said 2 Corinthians 10 wasn't our primary text, but it, prob- it is. <laughs> so let's just close with that. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. They do, brothers. That's a promise. They have divine power to destroy those strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. To Him be glory forever. Amen? Let's pray.
God, we are entirely dependent on your work in this. As we said, you are the God of truth and we have in our flesh actively suppressed the truth. Praise be to you that you have manifested your truth in Jesus Christ, that you have built a new relationship with us, a new covenant, not like the old covenant that our fathers broke, but this covenant that is sealed by Christ's blood. This covenant that gives us the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the truth and the word of truth. God, I pray that you would help all of us here to know and learn this word better and to be better equipped to apply that word in community to ourselves and to one another so that we can think your thoughts after you, that we can see the world as you intended it to be aright, and we can see the hope of victory that we have in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.